Welcome to Tempest Tossed. We're a production of the Zolberg Institute on Migration and Mobility at the New School, and I'm Alex Alenikov. Uh, today we're speaking with Jessica Goudeau, the author of After the Last Border, uh, which tells the stories of two refugee families who were resettled in the United States. Munan, Saku, and their children entered the U.S. in 2007, having spent many years in a refugee camp in Thailand after fleeing Myanmar. They'd faced danger in their home country because they were members of an ethnic minority, the Karen. Gudu also tells the story of Hasna and Jibril al-Salam, I should say that these are all pseudonyms in the book, who came to the U.S. from Jordan after fleeing violence in Syria in 2011. Uh, but the book is about more than these gripping, difficult stories of hardship and flight. It also recounts the history of the U.S. refugee resettlement program and the impact of the policies of the Trump administration. Hi, Jessica. Welcome to Tempest Tossed. Hi, Alex. I'm so excited to be here. So this is a, a wonderful story, beautifully told. How did you come to write After the Last Border? So I actually come to this work from academia. I have a PhD in American literature. And while I was getting my PhD at the University of Texas, I got to know several former refugees. So when the rhetoric shifted around 2015, not just at the time that with the election that was in process, but just across the board, there were so many new ways in which our country was beginning to talk about refugees. I reached out to the community of people that I had known for several years and asked whose story I could tell. And out of that began writing several articles and it eventually led to this book in which these two women tell their own stories in a way that allowed them to have control. They were able to choose what they wanted to include and what they didn't. But really, I wanted to give a raw example of what was happening, not when someone was you know, a refugee from 20 years ago, but a current example of what, what was happening right now. You know, I mentioned at the outset that, that the book follows these two families, one from Myanmar and one from Syria. Let's focus on Hasna and Jibril al-Salam. Can you briefly tell us what led to their flight from Syria and how they came to the U.S.? Yeah, Hasna um, and Jibril lived in Dara, Syria, which is the city where the civil war began in Syria. And that this was information that... Um, was for them not just you know something that happened far away, but affected their neighbors' children. And so when I first began doing interviews to try to find people whose stories um, I might be interested in telling, the very first time I met Hasna, it was not just um, the story of what they'd been through, but her own grief about how this had happened that made me feel so compelled to write about it. So the story begins really with their just in their home. Just I wanted to show them not as refugees, but as just people who were living their lives. And I wanted to begin there so that you had a sense of what was lost in the process of this. What happened to them in their home city of Dara? So there were some boys that during the Arab Spring used graffiti on the outside of their school wall in which they, instead of saying that they wanted to get rid of the president, they talked about wanting to get rid of the principal. Basically, these boys were kind of messing around and the response from the Syrian government was immediate and swift. And the more that they escalated it, the more that the parents and families and community leaders responded angrily because um, little boys were being tortured. It really began as some boys who were frustrated and also maybe playing a joke. And it turned into a community that was really 
rising up against injustice. And so for Hazna, this was something that was happening to her neighbors, but wasn't necessarily something that was affecting her until it escalated quickly and it began affecting her husband and sons and then the rest of the community. And the family then fled to Jordan, is that right? Which is because there was just over the border for Jordan. Yeah, it was so close across the border that they often would walk there for dinner and then come home. The two cities um, that she, when she fled across the border to Jordan, it was like a sister city to them. And so she stayed for as long as she could and sent her children across the border in order to keep them safe. But as the siege went on for months, it eventually became clear that there was no way for her to be safe. So she left very reluctantly, always hoping that she could return to her home. How'd she get to the U.S.? Over time, it was clear that the only way she could get education for her youngest daughter was if she applied to be a refugee. And so part of what I wanted to tell in this is I think often we have this stereotype or myth that refugees are dying to get to the United States. And instead, this was a very reluctant journey for her. She had no intention of becoming a refugee. She always and continues to want to return to her home in Syria. And so as each stage passed, and it became more and more clear that there was no way for them to return home. And one of the things that became really clear in this um, interview process is that the driving force for every decision that Hasna and Jibril made from the time Hasna left Syria until they were reunited in Jordan and eventually came over together was to keep their family together. What was the impact of the Trump policies, the so-called Muslim ban that prohibited people from Syria uh, and other Muslim majority countries from coming to the U.S.? So they were a great example of what happens when people are in the middle of the process. So Hasna and Jibril were able to come over to the United States as they had planned, reluctantly and sadly, because they didn't want to leave Syria. But they were grateful for the opportunity because it meant that their entire family could be together. But when the Muslim ban hit, their oldest married daughter, who was in the process of rejoining them and would have been behind them by only about six months, was caught up in that. So she ended up being diverted to Canada, and it affected the rest of the choices that were made by the other children. It meant that the other children ended up in other places. One has stayed in the region, one ended up moving through Europe um, illegally in order to find a safe place. And watching Hasna and Jabril deal with the ramifications of that, not only are they not able to be reunited with their families, but they're also um, feeling incredibly sad because their families are still in danger, especially their children and grandchildren. And so the grief of that, of these cruel policies hitting in the middle of their process has been really difficult. You know, much of the book is devoted to the actual resettlement process and changes people go through once they get to this country. I think many people sort of assume that once refugees arrive in the United States, the, the story is a happy ending. And what you describe is that's really just the beginning of a process. And that also there's miscommunication uh, between even the best intention hosts uh, and the new arrivals. Can you talk about that a bit? Yeah, one of the things that I wanted the story to do was tell a more complicated version of what resettlement means. So we have the stereotype of refugees as grateful and hardworking, and they come here and it's kind of the happily ever after, and that's where the story ends. And I wanted the story to begin there. I, I do feel like Munah's story is in many ways a happy story, and it's a story of her own empowerment and her own story of finding who she is as a person. And they are incredibly grateful, but I also wanted to show that it's more complicated than that, that we shouldn't always expect refugees to be grateful, that resettlement is a deeply fraught, intense process, and the culture shock can be very difficult, especially for people who have spent years living in camps and don't speak the language, or for people who are coming 
as Hasna did, out of the trauma of war. And I wanted to show the many complexities and difficulties of resettlement, even before these policies changed and made it into the much more difficult situation it is today. And you also make clear that someone's past is, is never gone. It's, it's with them all the time. They think about home or they think about how they lived their lives at earlier times. And you've a particularly interesting account of Mu Na's rethinking of her mother's life in Myanmar and also in Thailand. So I have known Muna for over a decade before we began writing the book. And I thought that I knew the bones of her story. And when we began speaking with one another, listening to her tell her own story in her own words, I feel like I took away a lot of my own stereotypes. So of course, she is still deeply sad about many of the situations that happened. I thought resettlement was the biggest thing that she had overcome. And for her, it was her parents' divorce and the complicated relationship she has with her mother. And when she was separated from from her mother by resettlement, when her mother died and just watching her process the grief and kind of talk through what that meant for her really opened my eyes to how just human this is. And I know that that seems silly. I'm, I'm really tired of the word humanize because it shouldn't be a verb that we need to use. And yet I think it is something that all of us continually do. We view people through our expectations or our assumptions instead of allowing their own stories to stand for them, themselves. And that's what I was hoping this book would do. I want to quote a couple of sentences uh, that you write about uh, Hasna, about, uh, about the resettlement process for her. You say, Hasna hated that the war, and by that you mean the Syrian war, uh, had erased the good things in Syria, that people only knew about her country because of the refugee crisis. She wished she had the words to tell people in English that the word Syria was not one to invoke pity or fear. It tasted like honey on her tongue. Lovely. That was a direct quote, and it is the thing that she kept coming back to. So our interviews are really led by Hasna. I would, we would sit down, we ate lunch with each other every two weeks for almost two years, and there was a translator that, that was with us who goes by the pseudonym Amina. And Amina and Hasna and I would sit down and, and speak, and almost every session began with Hasna with her regret about what people understood about Syria and what Syria actually was. It was something that she said over and over and over again to the point that I think it has become kind of ingrained in me that the country is not what we view it as, but it is instead a place of hospitality and poetry and food and families. And I I share some of her grief as much as I can that we have so misconstrued what Syria actually is. You also describe uh, Rana, Hasna's daughter, uh, being in school, and I think she's 16 or 17 uh, at the time in high school, and she is wearing a hijab uh, and being told by one of her fellow uh, students that by wearing that, she was being oppressed. Yeah, and I think that so often we, we miss that the choice to be devout might look different for people of different faiths, right? And so, of course, it is a choice, and yet it, again, the stereotype is what is what has people coming in with this kind of assumption. Early in the book, in describing the history of U.S. refugee policy, you mention a newsreel that was shown in post-World War II days with, with lots of refugees in it, and the narrator asks, why do we help? Uh, and humanitarian and political reasons were given for responding to refugees at that time. I think the Trump administration has put that question back on the agenda by reducing so dramatically uh, refugee admissions. Uh, the Trump administration has basically said, there's no reason for us to help. We have no obligation to help. What's your response? 
I don't remember the exact quote from that newsreel, but it says something about how we can't be well if the other half of the world is sick. And it is an invitation to empathy that I think people saw in a new way after World War II. And I have been wondering, since I turned the manuscript in last year, long before we knew about a pandemic, what it would take for us to get to a moment of public awakening in which we were able to have that kind of empathy again. I think that the Trump administration represents a a group of people or a a side of our country in which we are not able to be empathetic to people who are in danger or who are in war or who have lived through some of the things that Hasna and Munah and tens of thousands of others who would be eligible for resettlement have lived through. And so my response is that people who care about these kinds of stories and who want to do better than what we're doing right now need to rise up and demand change, whether that be through voting or whether that be through you know, engaging in our communities, because I think the president reflects the, um, the views that many people have in our country. So I think it's as much about doing work to change the administration as it is to do kind of the community work that we need to in order to have a grander sense for what this actually means for real people. So the Trump administration might respond to that by saying, okay, we're happy to help, but we'll we'll give money to UNHCR and to other uh, NGOs, uh, other civil society organizations, and, and they can take care of refugees over there. They can take care of uh, Muna and her family in Thailand, and they can take care of Hasna and her family in Jordan. But that doesn't mean that we should be bringing them here where it's much more expensive to take care of refugees. What do you think of that argument? So I think that... Um, Refugee resettlement is not the response for the vast majority of former refugees, and it's not the response that most people, most people don't have access to refugee resettlement. Even before the changes made by the Trump administration, it was less than 1% of refugees around the world that ever had access to resettlement anywhere, not just in the United States. At the same time, part of the shift that I think has happened politically is that the compassionate conservatism of George W. Bush and others, in which they really did view private entities or faith-based groups as being responsible for picking up the tab in some ways. Like if a church really cares about doing something, then they can invest their money in it. So again, kind of the small government scale. The Federal Refugee Resettlement Program was a great example of that. And so part of what I think we're missing in this is that the Trump administration has taken what used to be reasonable conservative views and skewed them to the point that they've become racist, xenophobic views. It's not true that every refugee should come here to the United States, but there are many refugees for whom this is the only option to have safety and to have any kind of life and to be with their families. And for us to take that away for those refugees in addition to the many other things that the United States was already doing, which is funding UNHCR and working in places around the world and helping our allies. You know, if we were doing those kinds of things and only taking away refugee resettlement, that might be one conversation. But instead, what has happened is just taking away funding and destroying refugee support centers around the world and destroying relationships with allies internationally and taking away resettlement. So we've only made things significantly more complicated for people who have been through persecution and war. What you're saying about the the private support for refugees brings to mind the Canadian program that allows private citizens and groups to sponsor in refugees. They still have to clear the usual uh, rules and regulations of the Canadian government, but their entire support is paid for uh, by Canadian citizens. Uh, Having worked with the refugee organizations uh, in Texas, uh, where you met Muna and Hasna, do you think there'd be support for that kind of private resettlement scheme? 
You know, I have visited with several people in the last few weeks who have been talking about having more community-based responses based on the, the Canadian model. I think it is a complicated question, and I'm not a policy person. I interviewed someone recently for another piece that I'm working on about what's happening in Canada, and I have seen some downsides of that kind of community-based system. It ends up maybe punishing people who are in greater need because those who have relationships with communities here in the United States often get bumped up in the system. And so I understand that these can be complicated answers. But from what I've seen living here in Texas, I do think that there is more of a response and a desire to help former refugees. And that may be a community-based model alongside the traditional refugee resettlement model that we've had in the United States might be a way to kind of address that. So it allows people to have a bit more local control, which I think would address some of the issues that have been coming up in this administration. And I think that it would make it maybe a more palatable option for several people. If they're not interested in supporting resettlement, they don't have to, but those who are interested in supporting resettlement would have access to ways to do that. You also have it at your state level an issue because when President Trump issued an executive order saying that uh, states could uh, say that they didn't want refugees resettling in their state, uh, Governor Abbott was the first one to say, uh, we don't want any refugees here. And that that uh, Trump order was stopped by a court. But that was a pretty dramatic statement uh, by the governor of Texas. And I, I take it that the localities, the cities may feel differently than the governor does. I think it depends on the place. And I think that that's one of those answers, what people will say privately and what they're going to say publicly are very different. Um, When the pandemic hit, I was reporting a feature about resettlement in Abilene, Texas, which is out in far west Texas. And when the microphones were off, all of the mayor and the city manager and others privately talked about their deep desire to work with refugees. They had very personal stories about former refugees in their communities and at their churches and what that meant. But when it came time to actually saying it, they were very clear about the fact that the county in in Texas is who decides that. And so they were not able to go on record and talk about supporting refugees. And I think in Texas, we have a really complicated situation right now. And this is part of why I always want to be clear that this is not something that is going to be changed based on an election. So it's not as if one president is going to change this. That We have work to do in a variety of places in order to return to the kind of widespread support that we used to enjoy um, around refugee resettlement. I think here in Texas, Governor Abbott is a great example of someone who has done basically everything in his power to keep especially Syrian refugees out of our state. Given what you've seen and and written about, um, do you think the U.S. refugee resettlement is in need of major repair? Or if we simply uh, brought the numbers back up again, that would take us a long way along the road we need to travel? I think the answer to this is complicated. So I think, yes, in a short-term answer, having a new president with a new administration that's setting a cap and also setting a a floor. That's one of the things that the Biden campaign has talked a lot about is wanting to work with Congress in order to set a floor so that there is never a situation in which a president is able to bring admissions numbers down to the lows that we have seen under the Trump administration. But at the same time, the damage that has been done in only four years to agencies with caseworkers whose you know, ability to function in the community and whose tacit knowledge is lost to us as agencies have shuttered and caseworkers have moved on to new places, it's going to take time to rebuild. And I think um, 
one of the things that I am hearing from resettlement agencies around the country is their fear that this will happen in one fell swoop and then there won't be the kind of widespread move that we need to make to, to educate the public about what it means to be a refugee. So it really depends on people learning and listening and being engaged on a very local level. And in some ways, refugee resettlement is a city-based program, right? Because what's happening in Austin and what's happening in New York and what's happening in LA are very different from each other. And so it really requires everybody to be engaged on a local level as well as a national level. I wonder how you change that discourse. I, I want to quote another sentence from the book. And you talk about how in earlier days, uh, what it meant to be a refugee. People were either ignorant of it or sort of in a knee-jerk way said, yes, we should be nice to refugees. But then here's what you say. Almost without warning, a term that once inspired compassion and a program that quietly enjoyed bipartisan support for decades became hot-button political issues. Refugee became weirdly, wildly synonymous with terrorist. If that change has occurred for some or many Americans, how do we get the word back? I think the answer is through education, and I do not think that there is one thing that we can do, but a it's a combination of things that have to be done, again, from national leaders as well as just individuals and in schools. There are so many places. So I think the stakeholders who are involved in this, not just former refugees and not just resettlement agencies, but also community members and people who really care about this. You know, my neighbors, I live on a street that's a mixed political street. And I often envision my neighbors because we've had conversations during the pandemic over our driveways about what it means to be a refugee. And I think those are some of the things that need to happen in order for us to educate people more more broadly about what it means to be a refugee. And so we we have been here before to some degree, though never at the scale. And of course, you know, those of us who are writing books that look at history in order to figure out what it is that we're supposed to be doing now are always clear about the caveats. There are some ways in which we can look back and say we should do it like that and other ways that we don't have a precedence for this. But I think looking at what happened in the 1940s and the 1950s and the way that the U.S. government, as well as entertainment industries and educators and others, really worked to tell the story of what it meant to be a refugee. It wasn't necessarily an organized effort. It was just something that happened as people began to learn about it. I think widespread education is the thing that we need. Well, and of course, your book is a contribution to that effort. I think that what is wonderful about the book is it tells a very complicated story. It's not just a, a story of a family or two families in need who came to the U.S. and came to the land of milk and honey, but these are actually very, very complicated reasons for flight, longings for home, difficulties at integrating into a new society, but overall a program that saves lives. A big part of forming American identity are the stories that we tell ourselves. And so the stories that we have often told ourselves, we are, you know, a nation under God doing good work, or we are a nation who is based on these types of values. We're really recognizing in this time period that a lot of that is unraveling. And that is deeply painful, and I want this book to contribute in a critical way to that work. I'm very surprised to feel hope at the end of writing this book. I think because this has been so chaotic, I thought it would just be terrible and I would be writing a really sad book. But at the end, I feel like there's a real opportunity here. The United States has changed its mind and often does make better choices in history, and it's not always perfect. But I think we're at the precipice of a moment as a country in which we're going to have to make some very big decisions about who we are. 
And I think recognizing that that fight for American identity is still ongoing and that it impacts real people and that we can make a better choice means that in the days and months and years ahead, there are opportunities for us to do better than we've done. What's the main takeaway you would like your readers to leave with? So with the story of Muna, I really wanted people to see what refugee resettlement was and what our country was capable of. I had no idea when I began writing this book that it would basically become a love letter to a federal program. There are a lot of things that were not working about refugee resettlement, but there were a lot of things that were really beautiful and extraordinary, frankly, when we look back on it. And with Hasna, I wanted people to understand what's at stake currently. I want them to know that people from Syria and other places in crisis around the world don't have time to wait for us to debate about them as if they're policies and not people. And then with the history sections, I really wanted us to understand who we are as a country and ask ourselves, is this really who we want to be? Jessica Goodell, thanks so much for spending time with us. The book is After the Last Border. Thanks. Thank you. We recorded this episode before the November election. President-elect Biden, in a statement to Jesuit refugee services just after the election, pledged to offer resettlement in the United States to 125,000 refugees a year. This would be a dramatic increase from Trump administration policies that limited refugee admissions to just 15,000. Tempest Tossed is a production of the Zolberg Institute on Migration and Mobility at the New School. Our producer and engineer is Sahil Ansari, and our music is composed by Eli Alenikov.